Life Audio. I love that distinction you made earlier between sexual ethic as a kind of robust way of thinking about how to live our lives in a way that honors God, I think is how I would define an ethic, versus behavior, which is about rules and regulations and doesn't get to the heart of the matter so often. So I wanted to shift men and all people, really, out of modes of thinking or behaving that are dehumanizing to others. Hey, hey, friends, it's Dana Shea, and you're listening to Real Relationship Talk. Thanks so much for being here today on this episode, y'all. I love talking about hot topics. I do. I think if I had another dream job other than this podcast, of course, I would be a talk show host and I would talk about hot topics all day long. And of course, I would do it from a Christian perspective because I don't want to talk about all the cray cray and get like caught up in the vortex of reality TV talk. Okay. But I love talking about topics that are meaningful and important and a lot of people are kind of at a standstill or they're stuck or they don't know what they believe or what they should believe. This topic that we're going to talk about today is non-toxic masculinity. Now, if you are paying attention, you know that that is kind of a buzzword in our culture right now, toxic masculinity. We throw it around a lot. You see it all over social media. And depending on your vantage point, maybe you don't even know or have a good grid for what toxic masculinity is. Maybe you have been affected by toxic masculinity. And uh, newsflash, if you are a woman, you have been affected by toxic masculinity. So I wanted to have this conversation because it is worth having. It is worth having this conversation from a faith-based perspective because, again, if you listen to just anybody talk about this, sometimes people's solutions are to go way into the opposite um, spectrum. And that's not what we're doing. I love masculinity. I think that it's a good thing. I think that it can be healthy. And I think that we need to come to an understanding of how to do it the right way. So I have with us today our guest, Zachary Wagner. Zachary is an ordained minister. He's a husband. He's a father. So of course, y'all know we're going to talk about some relationship stuff too. And he is the author of the book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. So whether we see this from the Me Too movement or the Church Too movement, hello, there's been a lot of crazy stuff happening in our churches from politicians to pastors, priests, everyone, male and female. Again, we have all been affected by this unfortunate toxic masculinity in our culture. And it's actually eroded what healthy male sexuality is. What does it mean for a man to be fully masculine, fully confident in his sexuality, but to be able to express that in a healthy way? We're going to talk about that and so much more on this episode. And we actually have a surprise guest with us today. You're going to see her or hear her make her little entrance toward the end of the episode. So make sure that you listen out for that. And I also want to just draw you guys' attention to an episode that we did a few weeks ago, episode 181. And this was with Dr. Andrew Bauman. We talked about how to create a sexually safe marriage. So a lot of these uh, topics and principles that you're going to hear today really overlap with a lot of stuff that Dr. Bauman was saying. So thank you guys so much. I hope that you stay all the way to the end because this is going to be one of those episodes that are hopefully is going to help to expand your perspective and you can actually start going into conversations about toxic masculinity with a little bit more wisdom um, and saying something different than just kind of like the rah-rah that's out there right now on social. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get 
get into our conversation with our guest, Zachary Wagner. Zachary, it is such a pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. How are you? And uh, and thank, just thank you, you know, just starting out, just thank you so much for being here. But how are you today? How are you feeling about our conversation? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Dana. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm I'm doing good today. The sun is, well, I kind of out. I was going to say it's out, but I see a good amount of clouds right now. Um, but that's not something to take for granted uh, in England where I live. So you enjoy the, the sun when you get it. Now, how long have you lived in England? Because it, when it when I read that you grew up in Chicagoland, I'm assuming Chicagoland, Chicago, Illinois. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Correct. Is okay. No, okay, no, I'm no wrong. you are correct. Yes, okay, I grew okay, up. Okay. Yeah, there's no Chicago in England that I'm aware okay. of. Okay. Um, so yeah, I grew up in the Chicagoland area, and my family and I we moved here to England for me to work on a on a grad school program. Uh, about three years ago, we actually came over right in the middle of the pandemic, which was wow. interesting to, to say the least. Uh, but we've been here for a little bit. Uh, I got maybe another year or so in my program. And then we're, you know, the plan by default is for us to move back to the States, maybe back to Chicagoland where where we were from originally. At least I was from. We lived there. Uh, my wife grew up in Portland, Oregon, but we uh, met and got married in the Chicagoland area. Awesome. Awesome. Well, speaking of your wife, how long have you all been married? Uh, it'll be it, just over nine years, so ten years next uh, next May. Awesome! Which, it just feels insane. I, I can't believe that it's been almost a decade, but here we are. Yeah, ten years is a big number. You know, it's like when you finally get into the double digits, you're like, oh my god, like this thing is for real. You know? <laughs> yeah, we've been doing. Yeah, we've been doing for a minute, and it's. I, I, I we used to say like, we felt for a long time like we just got married. But when you're getting close to 10 years, it's just like you can't say that anymore. Like 10 years is a long time. Um, and it, you, like you say, you're kind of like, OK, we're doing it. Because in um, in a decade's time, there's a lot of up and down that you go through in relationships um, and, you know, some good times and definitely some some challenging times uh, are certain to come up in, a, in 10 years. And that's been the case for us. But it grows into something completely different than you can imagine uh, I think when you're saying those vows, um, but it's, it's, it's harder, but it's also better in so many ways. Um, and you, you just got to stick with it and put in the work. That's right. That's right. We end every episode in saying a good relationship is not one that works. It's one where you put in the work. And so I love that yes, you're talking no, about it's so good. I didn't even know that. Yeah. That. Look at that. We're, there you go. We're just making these connections. Absolutely. So, you know, Zachary, I know I've read a little bit of your story. And I know that, as you mentioned, when you and your wife first got married, it was a little bumpy. Um, There were a lot of ideologies and things Mm -hmm. that you had to kind of dismantle. And I believe you even sought therapy for that. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this ties into the book that I recently released that I'm, you know, sure we're going to mention at some point. Absolutely. Um, on uh, non-toxic masculinity is the title recovering healthy male sexuality and a lot of my wife Shelby and my issues in our marriage although certainly not all of them um, connected back to our struggles around our intimate life and that was something that kind of from go uh, was not clicking in the way we might have been led to believe it might uh, given our upbringing and background in a kind of conservative uh, Christian context where oftentimes, you know, I don't want to caricature, I don't want to paint with broad brushstrokes, but we certainly grew up in a context where the explicit 
uh, if not explicit, the implicit teaching was that if you follow the rules, follow God's plan for marriage and sexuality and don't fool around before you get married and quote unquote, save yourself for your spouse, then you can expect that your intimate life in particular will not only work and, and um, click and be shame free and easy, but it'll be especially so it'll be especially pleasurable. It'll be especially fulfilling because of, you know, again, going back to that theme of putting in the work, uh, if you put in the work beforehand and kind of keeping it in your pants, and then it's all just going to come together in, in your marriage. And that wasn't working for us, despite, you know, perfect, but we, we did our best. We followed the rules. We weren't uh, intimate before we got married. And that was a struggle for us. And long story short, there were kind of two things going on there. On my side, there was a lot of, I think, the shame messaging that I had internalized around my sexuality, where any sort of feeling of sexual desire or any type of sexual experience, whether with another person or with pornography or whatever the case may be, was an occasion for an immense amount of shame. And that didn't just go away when I stepped into my marriage. This is sometimes called like the light switch myth, where you'll be able to go from thinking that intimacy and sexuality is is bad and something to be avoided outside of marriage and then all of a sudden you get married and you can easily turn that that shame switch off and now it's this beautiful fulfilling thing um and that doesn't just that just doesn't work for everybody so that's kind of what was my side of the equation was uh shelby's side and she's very open and gives her consent for me to share this in a context like this was that she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and when we got married, she didn't quite have those pieces put together, wasn't thinking about her story in those terms. Uh, but, you know, the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. And those experiences from much earlier in her life were being uh, brought back up to the surface and re-triggered in ways that we didn't understand and certainly didn't expect in uh, our marriage relationship. So, Maybe I'll stop there. There's a lot more that I could that I could say, yeah, um, there's and so... that I go to in in the book. But mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of the setup for where where this came from early in our marriage. Yeah, I mean, there's so much we can unpack from your story. You know, one of the questions that I have off the bat is, did you and Shelby ever receive any kind of premarital counseling or premarital coaching or anything like that? We did, yeah, as a part of our, um, I guess, premarital process for lack of a better word at the church that we were in we went through the book uh i don't even remember what book it was but it was some preparing for marriage that might even be the title book um from a christian publisher i don't really remember the details of it um and as well there was also the book sheet music which maybe some people might be familiar with Mm -hmm. um which is about um and people might have some not super positive feelings about it. I don't know. Maybe maybe there are people out there who had a great experience with sheet music. Um, but uh, that was kind of our context and our introduction. Certainly our um, conversations having to do with trauma in Shelby's case were not part of the conversation going right. into marriage. Uh, yeah. There was, and I think as often is the case in you know, this is a big thing in my book, so-called purity culture, quote-unquote purity culture, as it's sometimes uh, called these days. Um, the focus is on sexual 
histories, quote unquote, like what have you done with other people in the past? And, you know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing to think about going into a, a marriage context. You know, we all have our stories, we all have our wounds, we all have our histories and stuff like that. But it was history in terms of like, what are the sexual sins that you may have committed before you got to this relationship that are going to muddy the waters here? Not so much in Shelby's case, and this was a huge piece, what were the sins that were done to you that mm -hmm. you are carrying the weight of, or you are carrying um, the shame from, you know, it's not mm -hmm. fair, but this is how trauma works. What trauma does oftentimes is it puts the shame of someone's sin onto the victim, right? where rather than the abuser being the one who is carrying the shame, the victim then becomes the one who is carrying the shame in abusive mm -hmm. situations and abusive experiences where the survivor is then wondering, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this uh, happening to me? Um, and to get back to your question, that would have been immensely helpful for yeah. us to work through that going into the marriage. And it was just not on the radar at all. Yeah, it's not on the radar. You know, I can say as a pastor in my church and, you know, I know that you're a minister mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm, I'm so mm -hmm. grateful that you're having these conversations and that we as a church, many of us are bringing some of these issues to light, such as the churches. Um, and I say, you know, obviously we're speaking in some generalizations here, but this obsession with sex, this obsession yeah. with from the time that you're a 13 year old in youth group, that's like the main thing at, you know, that if you're in mm -hmm. most evangelical type churches that you are going to get the purity talk. They're not going to call it the purity talk anymore because like you just said, you know, that's, that's definitely yeah. uh, got some bad, uh, some bad baggage with it. Um, but, sure. you know, I remember being a, a teenager in my youth group and that seemed to be almost like the focus every single week was your sexual ethic. Your, not even honestly, not even your sexual ethic, your sexual behavior, your sexual behavior, not yes. necessarily. Yes looking mm -hmm. at you as like this holistic person that has thoughts and feelings and, you know, um, curiosity and all of those things. It was just, do not have sex, do not have sex, do not have sex. That was like drilled mm -hmm. down into us. And, you know, to your point, mm -hmm. I think that, and I'm very aware of this, even as I'm doing premarital coaching and things like that, 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 that has to be sure. a level of conversation that goes deeper than don't have sex before marriage. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that we need to be sharing with with people who are not married yet about what it what does it really mean to have a biblical sexual ethic? Like, what does it mean to want to be a Christian who loves the Lord, who wants to honor God with your whole life, not just your body, but with your mm -hmm. whole life? How like what is what is the the preferred way? And so I want to talk about that in just a moment. But we sure. do need to take a, a short break for a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So, Zachary, let's talk a little bit about what is, in your viewpoint, a better way? Because what we Mm. don't want to say is it's just the wild, wild west and just do whatever you want. But what's the balance? Like, What's a what's a healthier viewpoint that we should be having surrounding our bodies, surrounding our surrounding our sexuality, surrounding a good, healthy sexual ethic? Sure. Yeah. Something I talk about in the book, and this is from part of the reason I wanted to write the book is because I think there's a lot of good conversations happening in the church on these types of topics, things like trauma, things like purity culture. People are, I think, um, people who grew up in it are starting to kind of wake up to the ways in which, wow, that wasn't super helpful, or there are wounds that I have and kind of patterns of thinking that were instilled in me. And there's a lot of conversations, a lot of books that have been written around that, not a ton from a man's or a male's perspective. So that's something I wanted to offer was kind of what is what is the male experience coming out of purity culture and some of these messages. And I think what I try to commend in the book is instead of thinking about sexual behavior. I love that distinction you made earlier between sexual ethic as a kind of robust way of thinking about how to live our lives in a way that honors God, I think is how I would define an ethic Mm -hmm. versus behavior, which is about rules and regulations and doesn't get to the heart of the matter so often. So I wanted to shift men and all people really out of modes of thinking or behaving that are dehumanizing to others. So a lot of times when we think about, you know, something like lust, quote unquote, well, what is wrong about lust? And, you know, a lot of times we'll say, well, it's just, it's just wrong. You know, it's, it's wrong to lust after people and it's the opposite of love or it's incomplete or something like that. And what I tried to focus in on is this idea of that it's dehumanizing to the other person. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at them or thinking about them and using them in some way that's because that's what it is to gratify yourself mentally or physically or whatever the case may be that is not treating them as a full person it's treating them as an object that's so a lot of times in these modes of thinking about uh sex that prevail still often in the church where there's this idea that kind of men are more sexual, more visual, have this tendency to sexualize other people, sexualize women, and will probably connect and say, well, that's dehumanizing to women. Men shouldn't think about women that way. And I guess don't get me started on the fact that we often talk about male sexuality as if that's just an inevitable way that men view the world, that they're just constantly sexualizing everyone around them. Helped, boys will be boys. Don't get me started on that. I mean, you can't. But (laughs) the point being is we can understand the way that's dehumanizing to women. One of the points I try to make is that it's also dehumanizing to men. Mm -hmm. So what I argue that if in purity culture or in a secular script of masculinity um, that kind of prevails in 
uh, sitcoms or romantic comedies or whatever the case may be. If women are sexual objects, men are sexual animals. Mm. And both of those are a form of dehumanization. So when you act towards or treat someone else in a dehumanizing or less than human way, you also are adopting a view of yourself that is less than human. You're not a moral Mm -hmm. agent anymore. You're just an animal following your instinct or a computer following your programming. And I think a lot of times the way we think about male sexuality is in these subhuman terms. It's not um, something that's integrated into a more robust view of what it means to be a human, what it means to be in a relationship. It's just this animalistic urge that men have. Um, so sorry, this is going to be, be a long answer to the question, maybe. So that's this kind of de- I want to push us away from attitudes and behaviors that are dehumanizing and us towards in the church ways of thinking about and acting towards other that are rehumanizing. And I think that is a paradigm that gets to these deeper issues of the heart and of what it means to be human, not just don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. Um, and there's another, another answer to your question, but I don't want to overload this, this one answer. So maybe I'll stop there and let you respond and I'm happy to provide the other bit if you want. No, I love your brain. Like, yeah, I just like, like I see all the wheels <laughs> turning and, <laughs> and this is, there's so much, you know, there's the me too movement, the church Too movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think 100%. that the reason, the reason that the world is in such upheaval is because the, this issue has been silenced for so long. Things have obviously been swept under the rug and now yeah. it's getting to the point where, okay, we can no longer keep silent. We have to start addressing some of these issues. I'll be honest. I read one of the reviews about the book and it was from, I won't mention the publication, but it was a evangelical Christian publication. And some of the pushback, sure. I think that, you know, that, that you were receiving from the book was on the fact that you are actually going kind of to the root of what you just talked about, you know, how when we teach, when we Mm. over teach or when we overemphasize this whole like male sexuality, then what we do is then we inevitably will dehumanize the male and the female. And, you know, I think of in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, obviously very, very well-known story, you know, where it talks about that they were both naked and unashamed. And I I can imagine Adam and Eve kind of walking around the garden. And yes, their sexuality was kind of on full display, but it wasn't the only thing. God gave them this whole, you know, list of things. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, rule the earth, you know, care for care for my creation, all of these Mm -hmm. things. And I think that that is the the focus that as we're teaching whether it's pre-marriage or even people who are married because even in a marriage and this is kind of where I focus a lot on my podcast and what I do I'm a marriage coach but what I focus on a lot is in marriage itself you can be in a marriage like you said you and your wife you know in the beginning you kind of had these issues in the background um, and so you did the thing you got married you did it God's way but now you're married and now you're still struggling with some of these issues because there's not a lot of teaching on how to carry yourself sexually when you actually get married. So, okay, abstain, great. Mm-hmm. Like, don't have sex before you get married. Okay. But then once you actually get married, then it's like, how do we fully operate as full beings? Our sexual intimacy is one of the facets of intimacy. It's not all of it. How do yeah. we yes. operate sexually in a marriage that is holistic, um, And that is not going to continue to um, exaggerate those those notions that we received prior to marriage. There's a question in there somewhere. I don't know where, but it's in there. Yeah, no, I think I got it. I think I got it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I don't want to necessarily 
keep plugging the content of the book in a way that's that's um, ham-fisted, I guess. But there is a chapter on sex in marriage in the book. It's called. It's towards the end. It's on. It's called "Learning to Love: Reflections on Sex and Marriage," and um, everything. So let's go back to what I was saying about dehumanization and rehumanization, or even about lust. This is an interesting question that I think a lot of people don't think about. Is it possible? to lust after your spouse Hmm. or is it possible for there to be lust in marriage well let's go back to that definition we were talking about is lust if lust is treating someone not like a person but like an object it seems to me that it is very possible to lust after your spouse if you are treating him or her in a way where you are looking at their body as something you can use for your own uh satisfaction or as i think often happens in marriage it's it's a soothing it's i had a bad day so now i need this from you to kind of cover up for whatever dark emotions that i'm feeling right now Mm -hmm. and then sex becomes a mechanism or something that you use to soothe those dark feelings like you might with substance or alcohol Mm. or food or any number of things but that's not how we want to be relating to each other in marriage. Right. And sex is not about a bodily function. Ultimately, it's not a bodily function that is just meant to make me feel a certain way. It is at, at its core, at, at its definition, it's about relating. It's about connecting with another person, enjoying them or enjoying their body or using their body uh, to make you feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. And there can be, you know, some complicated questions about like, where's the boundary between connection and lust in a marriage? And I'm not saying that's all like super cut and dry, but I would say, think, and I, you know, I'd encourage men who might be listening or maybe, you know, women maybe make the subtle comment like, hey, you gotta go listen to this uh, for this conversation. Um are there ways in which you relate to your partner, to your spouse sexually that are dehumanizing to them where you're not treating them as a whole person? You're actually treating them like something that you can use or you're mm-hmm. entitled to, mm-hmm. or you uh, can't be bothered to consider their needs or consider mm-hmm. what may or may not be working for them in the broader context of the relationship or the or the bedroom perhaps more more narrowly mm-hmm. um those are all i think really sometimes hard questions to face up to the fact that oh wow am i mistreating this person that i love so much in the way that i am acting as if i'm entitled to their body irrespective of what's going on in the rest of the relationship what's going on in their life what's going on in their day how they would like this to look any number of questions yeah um, Facing some of those questions in, in our marriage, in myself and um, our relationship was hard, but really, really good for us, I think, in the long run. And good for me personally in uh, maturing the way that I thought about that that part of our relationship. I love that you're bringing this question up because, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of specific examples. Um, Our mutual friend, Sheila Gregoire, you know, she's been on the show a few times. Mm -hmm. You've been on her show. But, you know, one of the things that we talked about the last time I think that she was on the podcast, we were talking or that was the first time we were talking about this whole notion of marital rape. And 
for a lot yes. of, of evangelical Christians, even just that terminology makes them bristle. Like, well, what do you mean? Like that, that can't happen. There can't be yeah. rape within a marriage because the yeah. Bible says when you get married, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. And so kind of sure. everything goes. But then what we see is the fallout from that is all of these dysfunctional marriages and these men, especially again, a little bit of a generalization here where it is sex on demand for them. And it still doesn't yeah. fulfill the the insatiable need that you're talking about, that lust, because they're getting it from no, their wife. It doesn't. But they're also turning to pornography and they're also turning to illicit sexual relationships outside of the marriage. And so I think that this this is such an important conversation, Zachary, because when you get married, there still has to be a sexual responsibility. There has to still be, I love that you brought out, we don't use each other's body. As you were talking, I thought of, um, mm-hmm. you know, the story where David, David and Bathsheba, and for a long time, Bathsheba's kind of yes. gotten this bad rap, you know, in the Bible as like a bad girl of the Bible. That lady did nothing wrong. Okay, we know that. Like, historically, no. she was taken advantage of. And after their mm-hmm. son died, their first son that died, the Bible says that David went and lay with his wife. And I always remember reading that scripture with almost like just being appalled. Like here as a woman, I'm thinking Mm -hmm. if I just lost my baby and here comes Mm -hmm. my husband, like, hey, let's have sex. You know, it just seems so Mm -hmm. odd. And so I know that there are people on both sides, like, Mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, sex can be comforting like you mentioned, right? And I think that it can be as long Mm -hmm. as it's mutual. If I see my husband is having a bad day, Honestly, my first thought is not, let me go have sex with him. My first thought is, let me engage him emotionally. Let me find, let me talk to him. Let me have a conversation with him. Let me see how I can help him maybe to express some some thoughts and some feelings that might be, maybe he's not free enough to share at work or whatever it is, whatever the situation is. I'm going to go there mm-hmm. first. Now, in our connecting, yeah. in our conversation, if we both turn to another form of intimacy, be that sexual intimacy, whatever, then fine. Yeah. But I think that this does need to be mentioned that, when you as a man or a woman, because women can do it too, men probably more so, but when you look to your spouse to fulfill all of your needs in a sexual way, like you said, that does dehumanize them and it keeps you immature because you're obviously always needing that instead of learning. It's almost like a baby. Babies need to learn how to self-soothe. And if you're always being sued, exactly where I was thinking about going. Yes. Oh, good. Good. So it's like, you know, if you're always being sued by by mom or dad, then you'll never actually learn how to mature and how to learn that. Like I can actually soothe myself. Yes. Yeah. What I was going to say is that, um, make sure I can get the thought back here. I think there is a way to go back to your example of like, you notice that your partner's having a a hard day and they're carrying some stuff. They're coming in at the end of the day. Maybe they get home from work and you can tell things are off. You're not just like, what sexual favor can I do to make, can I do to make this all better? Right. But like, I do think sex and intimacy is a way in a healthy relationship that you do care for one another. Sure. But that can tip over into the second thing that you're talking about, where it's actually not caring for one another. I mentioned in the book this thing uh, briefly that I think about as like sexual babysitting Mm. a lot of times where a man oftentimes, you know, and I think this could, you know, you could flip the script. But I think oftentimes a man 
hasn't developed the emotional or sexual or uh, ethical maturity, whatever, however you want to think about that, to cope with the difficulties of life lived or stress or whatever the case may be in a mature way. And you kind of show up maybe at the end of the day without having pursued your partner for any type of other connection and expecting them to really sexually babysit you. Like, mm. and I need this release. I need this outlet. We better do something or I'm worried I'm going to go watch porn later. Or I'm going to go find that somewhere else. And that's just not, that's not a virtuous way of living out your sexuality. Right. And that's also not your partner's responsibility to soothe you. I, I think that that baby analogy is actually pretty right. It, is a way it's not to you know shame men who find uh that sexuality is a soothing thing to them mm-hmm. and sexual intimacy is something that soothes and makes them feel affirmed and loved and accepted that's not bad mm-hmm. but when you're requiring that of somebody that can tip into something really unhealthy and then to go back to the one of the other things that you said about this idea that marital rape isn't even a category because once you're in the marriage, your body belongs to your spouse. Well, there's different ways that your body can belong to one another. There's the one that's about connecting and mutuality and sharing and something that's actually really beautiful. Mm -hmm. But there's another way that, you know, not to put too fine of a point on it, but if, I mean, first Corinthians seven is the passage that this language comes from. And in the ancient context, it was an especially radical passage because it doesn't just say that the wife's body belongs to the husband. It says mm-hmm. the husband's body belongs to the wife. Right, right. So there's a radical mutuality in that passage that would have just blown ancient Roman minds mm. for sure. Um, but when that mutuality isn't there, it actually becomes like a slave ethic. Mm-hmm. where you are thinking about your spouse as if they're like your sexual servant. Yeah. And that's not yeah. a biblical vision of marriage, it seems to me. Right. And if your partner can't say no to you, are they your spouse or are they your sex slave? Because I don't think we want to go anywhere near that latter way of thinking uh, at followers of Christ. And sadly, I know of instances in which that passage is twisted um, to harm women pretty grievous um, and really demonic ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think what's even sadder is that there's been so many women who have been taught this from childhood. So they go into these marriages feeling it, yeah. like, yeah, and feeling like I have really no, I feel, I feel guilty if I've had a really long day and I've been with the kids all day or I've worked outside the home all day and then come home and been with the kids all day. And then my husband wants to have sex and I can't say no and so you have these women who yeah. are enduring, really. Um, more, ba- more babysitting. More babysitting, right? More ba- And then husbands wonder, like, why doesn't my wife want to connect with me? And so, you know, I think that the words that, that kind of the words that keep coming to my mind that you've mentioned are mutuality and connection. And, and I think really, honestly, Zachary, if we can really just take that word connection, which I talk about so much in other 
areas of what I do. But that word connection, if we could just bring it back home to that, that sexual intimacy is beautiful. It is a form of intimacy. It is not, if you only have mm-hmm. sexual intimacy, you have a, a, a de- defunct marriage. You really do. There's, there's mm-hmm. other forms of intimacy that we need to be honing into intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, recreational intimacy, um, all the things, right. Other than just sexual intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I liken it to, um, this like spectrum and, and obviously there's going to be, there's going to be some, um, some categories that you're going to be higher in as a couple, but if sexual intimacy and even the word intimacy, it just, the the connotation is there of mutuality in the word intimacy. It's something that Mm -hmm. both people are coming together to experience together. And so I think Mm -hmm. that for women who have been um, under some of this teaching that, you know, you have no rights or that once you get married, you know, you belong to your husband and it's just kind of sex at will. um, I think that a lot of that is being dismantled, praise God. But I think that there's still kind of this Mm -hmm. undercurrent um, of, of shame, of guilt, unnecessary guilt where I'm not telling women, obviously like don't care about your husband's sexual needs, you know, don't care. But one, even as I said that out of my mouth, I said, let me grab that back because sex is not a need food, water, and shelter are needs. Mm. Um, Sex is a desire, a strong desire, a healthy desire, but no one's going to die if they don't have sex. No one's going to die. And so I just, I have a story along those lines that I tell in the book. Oh, let's hear it. Again, just another little teaser because well, I, it's a it's a moment in a therapy session that I narrate uh, in a chapter of the book. Let's see. Grace, I'm on a call. Can you give me some space? No, nope, I can't talk right now. Sorry, sweetie. Close the door. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's real life, right? right? Work from home. Yes, love it. Well. Um, that I, so uh, I narrate this experience from a few years ago where after we had connected some of the pieces about Shelby's trauma story. And we were in counseling, both as individuals and as a couple, kind of working through this because this had really rocked us in some some ways, as you might imagine. And rightly, and uh, I think I'm grateful for it as I think back, our therapist told us, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, but I would recommend considering maybe just putting your sex life on hold in the marriage. It doesn't mean you're not mm-hmm. going to come back to it. It's just we got to work through some stuff. Shelby needs to have some space. Grace please. No, this is not, this is not appropriate, sweetie. (laughs) Uh, Um, So, uh, sorry about that. So the, um, so the therapist recommended that we just take a break and I was like, totally let's take a break. You know, I was on board with it. I was like, I want to do what's going to be supportive for my wife, but I was, you know, to be honest, it was hard. And I had all these internalized messages to your point where I thought of sex as a need and Shelby thought of sex as a need. And if I, the man, because we don't really necessarily think about it as a need for women in the same way that we think about men. Um, but if I, the man was going without sex, we thought that, you know, something, and we weren't talking about it explicitly in these terms, but we were like alarm bells. This is not good for me. This isn't going to work for the relationship. And in this therapy session, Shelby's, expressing some of the things you're talking about. Like, I feel like I'm letting Zach down. I'm not serving him the way I'm supposed to as a husband. This is something he deserves. This is, you know, all of these sorts of things. And the therapist just kind of paused and said, Shelby, I can tell you love Zach so much. And that means so much, but just remember Zach like doesn't need sex. Like Mm. he'll survive without it. It's not like you're asking him 
if you ask him to just put a pause on this for a month or a few months or a year even who knows how long we're just gonna have to take the work for this it's not like you're asking him to go without food for a month right you're not asking him to not eat for a year and that or, or not sleep for a week it's it's not that and mm-hmm. um that was such an important moment for us and of course i like knew that like oh yeah i can live without sex but we had both internalized this message that it was um so core to a man's needs and to a mare's that you can't even just put a pause on it uh and work through that so um yeah i think that's so so important to shift yes sex is a beautiful way that spouses serve one another but it's not a need in the same way that food or sleep or actual needs are yeah love that love that well zachary this has been such a great conversation i think there's so much more that we could talk about here and i appreciate you even from a male from a young man even from your perspective Mm -hmm. to be able to help not only men but also women to see that masculinity is a good thing like i think that word Mm -hmm. um has been kind of butchered in culture of course with like toxic masculinity so i love the focus on non-toxic masculinity we're not trying to Mm -hmm. make men effeminate we're not trying to strip men of their masculinity but what we're trying to do is to help both men and women see a healthy way a healthier way a healthier path forward so why don't you let people know a little bit about how they can find out more about you of course we'll link to the book in the show notes of the podcast but what's the best way for people to learn more about you yeah so you can visit my personal website zacharycwagner.com uh, you can find more about the book. It's on Amazon, Non-Toxic Masculinity, or uh, InterVarsity Press, IVPress.com is where you can get it directly from the publisher. Uh, I am on socials, uh, Twitter, and now, well, it's X now. X now, right? I'm yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also, uh, you know, Daddy Zuckerberg trying to save us from Daddy Musk over with Red. <laughs> so I'm over there trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, at the time we're recording this, I'm on a social media pause, so I'm not posting there. I'm trying to focus on some other stuff, and um, but you can follow me, and I'll I'll be back at some point. Um, and yeah, and that's how you can you can stay connected with me. Zachary C. Wagner is my handle on those, and that's also my personal website. Awesome, Zachary. Thank you so much. This has been such a rich conversation. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Uh, there's so much more that I wanted to talk to Zachary about. You know, it's so hard to obviously try to um, take an entire book and really shrivel that down to a 35 minute podcast. But I did my best. I hope that you all really enjoyed that conversation. There's so much that we really didn't talk about. So we'll have to bring Zachary back for maybe a part two. But I really hope that you all were um, maybe challenged a little bit in how you have viewed your sexual ethic. Whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are in your faith, not in your faith yet, I think that this is an important conversation because our sexuality is so much of who we are. It is not all of who we are, but it is so much of who we are. And if you just let the world kind of tell you what to think about sexuality, you're going to be broken and damaged. I'm just going to tell you, you're going to be broken, you're going to be damaged. But if we can come to the word and say, okay, God, what do you want for my sexuality? How do you want me to carry myself? This is a beautiful gift. Sex was never intended to be this dirty, uh, secretive thing that kind of lurks in the shadows and nobody should ever talk about it and we should feel all guilty and weird about it. 
that is not what God's intent for healthy sexuality has ever been. So I'm not even going to get on my soapbox, y'all, because we'll be here for another 30 minutes. But I just want to say again, Zachary, thank you so much for being a guest with us today. You can learn more about Zachary and everything that he does on his website at ZacharyCWagner.com. And of course, I will link to that in the show notes of this podcast. So you can find his link and his socials and all of that at realrelationshiptalk.com. And as we end every episode in saying, a good relationship is not one that works. A good relationship is one where you put in the work. Let's get to work, my friends. I'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Wow, you stayed all the way to the end. You, my friend, are the real MVP. Thanks again for listening to Real Relationship Talk. The show notes can be found at realrelationshiptalk.com. Have you subscribed to the podcast yet? If not, be sure to do that now. And may your relationships be uncomplicated as you build deeper connections. I'll see you on the next episode. Take care.